Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Yeah, let's just jump right into the Word. I'm, I'm really excited to be able to teach this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon chapter 2, uh, specifically verses 3 through 5. The weather's a little bit better today. You guys got the shade. <laughs> it's not or not, but it's not as bad today. Um, I feel like I've been sharing this each and every week as we get started, but it's because I, I feel it. I feel it deeply in my spirit that this is, uh, this is one of the more important messages that we have, or, or series, I should say, that we have gone through. And I, I, one of the things that uh, I guess has been a challenge is that we've been bouncing inside, outside, and I know for some it's probably been hard to stay consistent with us through this. Uh, hopefully you have, but if you haven't, I'm just sharing that all these messages are, are on the podcast, and I'm saying this because I really just feel stirring in my spirit for what we're going through, which is a, a message series entitled Bridal Generation. Bridal Generation. And with, with, in light of everything that's been happening, my heart has just been stirred to really look at certain things uh, with respects to Jesus coming back. And I'm not saying it's happening any, any day. We don't know the, the hour, but we can discern seasons. And the scriptures make it clear. Revelation 19 is one of the, the clear ones that when Jesus returns, the whole thing's culminating in a marriage supper with the Lamb. And more and more when you see in the scriptures, you see that as, as the text and as the Bible begins to speak about Jesus approaching, you'll find that the identity of the church is usually in the context of a bride. It's a bride and a bridegroom coming together. And so we've been on this journey for now eight weeks really exploring what does it mean to be the bride of Christ because I think it's something that a lot of people have misunderstandings about. There is, uh, I think, some wrong perceptions of what it means to be a bride and again, we can't go through all of that, but we've literally spent two months unpacking that. Some of the misconceptions and really what it means to be the bride of Christ, and we're going to continue in that today. Um, I will say this, that I think the summary of it is the bridal message is this, it's the covenant realm of intimacy that God's inviting us into. We know now that Paul said the great mystery has been unveiled, that from the beginning God has been after a people to join his son so that the two shall become one flesh. And so God has been after this deep, deep union with us. And the bridal message is the fact that we are, as the bride, beginning to connect with the heart of Jesus in a way that we have never connected with him before. We're beginning to see the passion of the bridegroom for us. We're seeing the passion of, of Jesus for his people. We're seeing his faithfulness. We're seeing his commitment to us. We're seeing his emotions for us. And what's happening is as the church, the bride, is encountering the bridegroom in this way, it's changing us and moving us. It's causing us to give an extravagant, wholehearted response back to him. And that is why, contrary to what some may think when they hear bride, the bridal generation, the bridal church will not be a weak church. It will not be a powerless church. It will be a church with zeal and fire and passion, purity, authority. These things will be the marks of this bride because as they've encountered how Jesus is pursuing them, it's caused them to lay everything down for him. And this, this is the concept of being equally yoked. In natural marriage, the Bible says you should be equally yoked to your partner, meaning you should have the same commitment to one another and a same uh, uh, intensity for the Lord. Well, it's the same thing. Jesus is coming back for an equally yoked bride, which means with the same passion and zeal that he has for us, we're beginning to reciprocate that and, and respond with that, that same love for him. So I think we're on the verge of something glorious. 
in terms of the bridal generation. So here, that's where we've been. Eight weeks of just unpacking different things about what it means to be the bride. We've been primarily in the Song of Solomon, which has been, uh, it's been really awesome for me. It's a book that I know of, but haven't really ever studied it, I feel like, in depth. Uh, the Song of Solomon is, is a song, uh, it's a love song between a husband and a wife. Solomon, the Shulamite bride. In the natural, that's what's happening, but we know that all scriptures testify to Jesus. So we know that this actually becomes a beautiful picture of Jesus the bridegroom and us the bride. And so that's how we've been approaching the Song of Solomon. And today what I want to talk about, super important, I want to speak with you about enjoying God. <laughs> Delighting in God. I feel in my own life and, and I feel like in the church as a, as a whole that there is really not a, a firm grasp on the joy of the Lord. And this is incredibly, incredibly important. And when you go through the Songs of Solomon, one of the major themes of how the bride interacts with the bridegroom is that she finds him delightful. In fact, one of the opening verses, she says that your love is better than wine. And wine is, is a pleasure of this world. And we know that wine has pleasure. But what she's saying is that your love is more pleasurable than anything this world has to offer. It's laced throughout this book. She continually declares that her bridegroom is delightful. And I believe, again, this is going to be a mark of the bridal generation that we're going to delight in Jesus as the bridegroom king. And I think that one of the things I, I, I feel like this is so important is that today we're going to break another misconception of, about God. And I feel like we've been doing this over the last few weeks. Two weeks ago, we shared how shame often gets in the way of us engaging with the Lord. And one of the things I think that fuels that is oftentimes we think that God is primarily angry or sad when he looks at us. And so because of that, we actually start to draw back from God, not realizing as covenant children, he's primarily delighting over the relationship. Even as we're growing in weakness, he doesn't delight over the sin, but still the relationship. Just as I delight over my son, even when he fails, I'm still connected with him. And the more we grasp this, we'll actually run to him in our sin and our failures. And this is how we grow. And I feel, I feel that misconceptions about God, if we don't address them, they really affect our intimacy with God. David said in Psalm 139, he says, in verse 23, 24, he said, search my heart, right? He says, test my heart, search my thoughts. He says, Lord, let me know if there's something grievous here because I desire to walk in the way of everlasting. In other words, what David is saying is, I want to walk intimately with you, Lord, but I know that there are things in my heart and in my mind that are not in alignment with, with who you are and how you see me. And I want those to be addressed so that I can grow closer to you. David said, Lord, I need you to search me because David realized there are just some things that he couldn't see in the natural. And so I just pray that as we dive into this again, we're saying, Lord, open my eyes, open my mind to, to things that I believe about you that have not been true. And today, I feel one of the big misconceptions is, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, but we're going to drill deep, is that the kingdom of darkness and Satan is really exciting and God is really boring. And for many Christians, this is kind of the perspective that we have. We say that it's God and the kingdom of God, it's kind of boring, it's dull, we just kind of endure it, but man, sin is really exciting. And we're going to talk about the consequences of this theology and what can happen because ultimately, enjoying God, this is so important, enjoying God is the key to intimacy with God and it's the key to the path, path to holiness. You are holy in Christ positionally, but we need to walk out our identity. And I feel what happens a lot in holiness is that we often think, one, it's either unobtainable or two, we try to walk in it in our own strength and get really discouraged. 
And we're going to actually see how it's, it's finding delight in the Lord that is actually the key to giving our lives and walking in obedience to him. God liberates us from the tyranny of inferior pleasures by revealing the superior pleasure of Christ. Once you touch and taste the superior pleasure of Christ, that actually equips you to say no to the inferior things. You actually abandon the lesser things in your life once you've experienced the one who is pleasures forevermore. And so we're going to go on a little journey today to be anchored in, in what it means to delight in the Lord. And I promise you, if you struggle, as I have for so long and can still slip back, of having seasons where you feel so committed and then you just, just go right back and you say, what in the world's going on? I'm telling you, commitment and dedication is not, is not enough. The Holy Spirit wants to empower you by having you fascinated with the revelation of the person of Jesus. So let this get into your heart. I believe it can just break chains uh, if you struggle with intimacy with the Lord, if time with the Lord seems boring, man, I want you to know that we haven't fully uh, explored who God really is. And we're just going to see that in the text. So uh, Song of Solomon chapter 2. Make sure everyone's there. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5. And this is going to be a beautiful, beautiful journey. Let me get a drink because I am burning up already. Here we go. Now, this is the Shulamite bride. This is the bride speaking to the bridegroom, to Solomon, for us to be the church speaking over Jesus. And I want you to just hear some of these things. It says in verse 3, she says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. Okay, just stop there. There's going to be one specific part we're going to highlight, but I just want you to see some of the surrounding text and get the context. The bride, remember, this is representative of the church. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the, the sons. And what she's saying is the bride has, has received the revelation that there are many trees in the woods, but there's only one apple tree. That's the bridegroom. That's Jesus. What she's saying is there are, there are many places and sources and things that you can attach your heart to, but only one revives, only one refreshes, only one satisfies, and that is Christ himself. And so the sons, when she says, my beloved is greater than the sons like an apple tree in the forest, what she's really saying is the sons are, are anything that could capture your heart. It's anything that could master your heart. It's anything that you would desire. She says, it's nothing in comparison to Jesus. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, we share this multiple times throughout this text, throughout this series. It says that the spirit and the bride say, come. The reason why they're saying this is because the bride has come into a revelation that nothing in this world will truly satisfy their hearts. This is the Maranatha cry of come. It's not from an absence. It's that they touch, they, touch, they taste it, but they want the full thing. They're saying, Lord, come because nothing else is enough and we want the full thing of it. It's the lovesick ache of the bride. In fact, in a few verses we're going to see, she describes herself as being lovesick. This is Psalm 84, how the soul pines after God. How do you know you've touched God? Your soul will begin to pine. You will begin to have a lovesickness. And when you see a, a friction or some a disconnect in your relationship, there's literally this aching in your heart that says, man, I need to connect with him again. And so she goes on. Let me read this. It says, I, this is the key, and I'll come back to it. She says, I sat down in his shade with great delight. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. We're going to come back to that. 
It says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples for I am lovesick. So before we get to the main part, let me just share verse 4. She says that her bridegroom, or for us, Jesus, leads us to the banqueting house. I think the revelation of that in its, in its fullest sense is the marriage supper. But we can experience this communion even now. And she says that it's the banner of love that leads her. This is so important. When armies would go to battle in this culture, battalions would be identified by their banners. And so what she's saying is that his banner over me is love. You've got to make this personal. And this is something we can say, but it's got to get in our hearts. It means that on my level, I could say Andrew's a, a pastor, a church planter. I'm a father, a husband. But these are all final realities that come under a greater truth, which is I am his beloved. Every other past label is broken off of me when I come under this. And so often we, in vain, we try to find our primary source of joy from ministry, relationships, whatever it may be. But God wants you to come under this, this beautiful truth that you are his beloved. The other thing on this is that when the armies would go out into battle, not only were they identified by this, but the banners would lead them in. And so what it's saying is that his leadership over your life is loving kindness. This is so crucial because there are times in our lives where we will walk through things that, man, we can't understand why it's working out the way it's working out. We don't understand the details of it. But let me tell you, his presence is safer than any known path. And he's saying, you can trust in me even when you don't know how it's all going to work out. His banner over us is not comfort, although the Holy Spirit comforts us. But what I mean by that is it's not saying that everything will just work out just right. But what it's saying is that you can trust that even in the, the greatest of seasons, the hardest of seasons, that the one who's leading you is loving towards you. And you can, you can engage and, and come under his leadership for your life. But here's, here's the key, and this is what we're going to drill into, is that verse 3, if you're looking in your Bibles. That second part of verse 3. Again, talking about enjoying God and delighting in God. And this is, listen, we're going to start getting this real personal with application. She says this. She says, I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So what she says is I, I sat with him, meaning she says I came away to connect with the bridegroom. I draw near to my bridegroom king. I, I have come to be with him. And my question for you is what is motivating her to be with him? What's moving her to actually sit and be with her bridegroom king? Well, it says it here. She says, I sat down in his shade with great delight. Not just delight, great delight. In other words, what she says is, I like being with him. I enjoy sitting with him. I enjoy engaging with him. This is pleasurable. I find it delightful to connect with my bridegroom. I find it enjoyable to connect with my husband. Listen, this is Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah and he says, Rabbi, it is good that I am here. I promise you this, every, every excuse, everything that pulls on our hearts to say that doesn't want us to connect with the Lord, when we finally do it, the only response we have is, Lord, it is good that I am here. This is what I was made for. And I want to drill into this, that the bridegroom revelation here is that she enjoyed, she delighted being with the Lord, spending time with him, and following him. Does it sound like this language, that being with, with her husband, does it sound like it was a bummer? Does it sound like she dreaded this? Does it, does it sound like that it was a nuisance? 
And she just said, well, I know that I, I've got some Christian duties and I'll just check this off. I got to be with him each and every day. So let me just get that out and knock it off. Not at all. She says, with great delight, I sat with him. And so my heart is, I want to say, Lord, help us to grow today. And what, I want to know what she knows about him. I want to know what she knows. Lord, what are you trying to show us that, that, that is true about your nature? That you are actually desirable and pleasurable. And I want this revelation so that this is what fuels me. She was not forced. She was fascinated. She was not manipulated to be with him. She was moved. She wasn't coerced. She was compelled to sit with him. There's something that she knew about the bridegroom king that I believe God wants to speak into our hearts. And guys, I think we need a, I think we need a paradigm shift when it comes to how we engage with God and how we see him. And it's what I shared in the beginning, that we often think Satan's really exciting Sin's really exciting, and God and his kingdom and being a part of that is incredibly boring and dull. And so here's what we start doing. We start projecting this, and we have this mindset that prayer, abiding, communing with the Lord, here's what it is. It's about getting before a boring, dull, angry God and enduring as long as you can, and if you will just pay the price of being with him, you will receive a reward. And the only reason why we sit with him like that is because we know he's still more powerful than Satan, or else we probably wouldn't even do that. And many have this mindset that this is what it's like to connect with God. I feel like if I could take some liberty, I feel like God is saying, Jesus, I like being with you. <laughs> I don't find it that hard to be with you. And I, I just, I want our hearts to be awakened to this, that, man, she, she desired to be with him. And I believe what, what she was walking in is available for us. And it, listen, if we do not change this mindset and really begin to get before God and just be honest and say, Lord, I, I don't enjoy you like this, and I see it, it's available, and I want to. If we don't do that, this theology of, of saying that God is boring and not understanding the pleasure of the Lord, it will crush intimacy with him. And it will make us extremely vulnerable to temptation. Why? I want everyone to hear this. The power of temptation rests on a deceptive promise that sin, sin will bring more satisfaction than living for God. Okay, that, that's that's... That's what the scriptures say in Hebrews 3.13, the deceptiveness of sin, the power of temptation lies in this, this lie. It says there's something that this thing can offer you that God cannot, that living for God cannot, and therefore we go for it. Do you know what it says in Hebrews 11.25? I was fascinated by this. It's the Hebrews Hall of Faith, and it goes through different characters in the Bible. One of them is Moses, and Moses we know grew up in, in uh, under... Uh, the, the leadership of Pharaoh, really. But it says in Hebrews 11.25 that he, he uh, chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than experiencing the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin's pleasures are actually fleeting. The, the deceitfulness of it is that it will last, it will be permanent, it will give you what your heart wants, but once you go for it, you actually find it could never give you the things that you were desiring. John Piper said it this way, sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. Man, we're going to, this is so important because our approach to holiness is usually always with doing first when really it's about what our hearts are captivated with. And when you start loving him, you'll find obedience will flow after that. And that's, that's where I really want us to see this. The call to holiness is actually to enjoy God. It's not to miss out on fun. You will miss out on some sinful activities, that's true. But let me tell you something, your heart will not miss out. 
Because those activities, they can't revive you, they can't refresh you, they can't actually satisfy you. In fact, most of the time, they leave you more broken, isolated, and disconnected than ever before. And the Lord wants us, man, to really understand that if we, the Lord is, if I could put it this way, he is serious about joy. (laughs) Sounds like an oxymoron, but it is. In fact, we're going to see he actually commands us throughout scriptures to find joy in him. Delighting in the Lord is actually a duty of ours. Because if you don't, you'll be reduced to commitment and dedication. And even Peter, when he said, Jesus, I'll never, I'll never forsake you like everyone else. Dedication is good up until a certain extent. The Holy Spirit wants to fuel you, empower you with the beauty of Jesus. We've got to catch this. And so God, listen, God is the author. He's the author of joy. He's the author of pleasure. Satan just counterfeits it. He offers empty substitutes. We don't have to be afraid at what he offers. We don't have to be intimidated by what's being offered because it pales in comparison. And the more we get this, the more we won't give ourselves over to it. And so let me, let me just share a few uh, verses. You don't even need to turn here. But the scriptures, I just did a quick word search. The scriptures are littered with different, um, different uh, writings about finding joy in the Lord. And this is amazing. This doesn't even scratch the surface. But listen to this. It speaks to God being the author of joy and pleasure. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32.11, be glad in the Lord. These are actually commands, a lot of these. Psalm 36.8, I drink from the rivers of your pleasure. Wow, rivers of pleasure are found in God. Psalm 16.11, which we're going to see in just a moment. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Romans 5.11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 3.18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And finally, 1 Chronicles 16.27 says, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Meaning gladness is in his presence. I wonder how many of us have really a theology that we serve a glad God. We serve a joyful God, even in righteous anger. God does not shut off his gladness. He is forever glad. And I just feel we don't always know this. And so we actually disconnect from God or we draw back. But the bridegroom, or the bride I should say, has a revelation of the, 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 the delightfulness of her king. I think one of the most beautiful portions of this in... Uh, Hebrews 1.9, we were doing this in a, in a some chapel a few months ago, and I want you to catch this. I think this is so incredible. Hebrews 1.9 says that Jesus, we know that he's set apart from man in many ways, but one of the ways is that he had the oil of gladness. Jesus was smeared with gladness. Now, we know that Jesus is the exact representation of who? The Father. Jesus said, you see me, you see the Father. So what do we know? We know that Jesus walked around smeared with gladness. He was happy. He was joyful. We know that he represents the Father. So what do we know about the Father? The Father is glad. Isn't it interesting when Jesus would walk into towns, you would see many people swarm around. And there was a particular people group that always came up to him. You know who it was? Children. Children always ran up to Jesus. Now picture, he represents the Father. What a beautiful picture of children running up to who's representing the Father to them. Do you know who children never ran up to? The Pharisees. Do you ever see children running to the Pharisees in the Scriptures? Never once. Yet we often present God the Father as a Pharisee. This is how we present him. Being with God is like going to the principal's office. Do you remember that phone call when you're in school and knock on the door? 
and they said, and your teacher would say, hey, Andrew, the principal wants you. Even if it was for something good, something your heart immediately said, are you kidding me? What did I do? Do I really have to go there? And many of us are engaging with God the Father this way, not realizing he has the oil of gladness. And that when we start doing it, maybe we're going to start delighting in him and it's going to set our hearts free. Enjoying God fuels proper obedience because the more you enjoy him, the more you want to please him. This is so important. There are, I want to teach this, there are basically three forms of obedience. And I really, I want you guys to listen to this fully through because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. There are three forms of obedience. All of them I think you can find in the Bible. All of them you've probably seen in your life. The first one is duty-based obedience. Okay, so this basically means you are in relation with the Lord, but you feel, you don't necessarily feel the Lord. You're kind of disconnected, but you know that he's asked you to do something, right? Maybe you don't even want to do it, but you know that he's king, he's Lord, he died for you. And so at the end of the day, you say, you know what, Lord, it's my obligation, it's my duty, I'm still going to do it. Okay, that's, that's good, right? That's, you obeyed at the end of the day. The Lord gave a parable about two sons. One kicked and screamed, but finally did it. So that's good at the end of the day that you obeyed. There's another form of obedience, not just duty-based, fear-based. Fear-based obedience is when someone is afraid of punishment, so they'll respond to the Lord. So for, for example, this would be if I were to lay out right now and say, listen, there are consequences to sin. Hell is a real place. And I kind of really drill this in. And some says, well, I don't want to be punished, so I will receive you, Jesus. Now, let me be clear. The Bible gives many warnings of sin. And, but here's the key. They were not meant to transform your heart. The, the, the consequences of sin were never meant to actually change you. This doesn't mean that we do not present them. This doesn't mean that we do not speak about the reality that a life apart from Jesus will lead to eternal separation. It doesn't mean we do any of that. But what I'm saying is if all we do is emphasize the consequences of sin, it will never be enough for someone to walk faithfully with the Lord. See, that, that's, that's fear-based. What I found in my life is that when I was operating in the realm of fear-based obedience primarily, what I found was the consequences of sin didn't stop me from sinning. It stopped me from sinning in public. I started sinning more in private because I was afraid of being found out. See, it doesn't really lead to whole life transformation. Now we lay out what will happen, but we've got to share, there's a deeper realm of obedience that God wants to take us into. It's not duty-based, it's not fear-based, it's affection-based. And affection-based is when you receive and have a revelation of God's heart for you, and as a result, you start responding back with wholehearted love back to Him. And guys, let me tell you something, duty-based and fear-based, Look, when in doubt, when those things motivate you, good, obey the Lord. But if you want to walk into something deeper and you want to be able to walk consistently with the Lord and really yield your life, you have to move beyond that into affection-based obedience. Here's the example. I shared this, man, I think it was years ago, so I can share it again. I think there's a two-year rule on uh, preaching material (laughs) so I can come back. But there are two ways that you can motivate a horse. One is with a carrot. The other one's with a stick. When you motivate a horse to move with a stick, you beat it. (laughs) And what happens is, is the horse will move. But here's the problem. The moment you stop beating the horse, it stops moving. It's only responding to external pressure. But there's another way to motivate a horse, which is to hang a carrot before it. And the horse will go for that because it's being motivated by something on the inside. So if a horse were to walk into a barn and see a whip on the wall, it doesn't start running. That whip has to be applied. 
I feel like for my life, this is how obedience was. As long as I had someone telling me, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, or as long as I was gathering with people around me, that was like the whip to keep me going. But once I got away from everyone, I went right back to how I used to live. There wasn't a deep heart change that was going on. But if a horse were to walk into a barn and see a carrot on the floor, no one has to tell it. It runs after that because it has a desire for that. This is affection-based obedience. Imagine, imagine a, a, a young bird who's never flown yet, and it's up in a nest. And it doesn't realize it can fly, but it falls out of the nest, right? Lands on the ground. And once it lands, there's a predator that sees it. They lock eyes. This little birdie's really afraid. The predator comes after it, and the bird scurries to a hole at the base of the tree, just trying to get away and save itself. It finally finds the hole, and it's literally panting for dear life, saying, thank God I escaped that. I feel like for, again, I can apply it myself. Maybe you've never experienced this, but for a long time, that was what obedience looked like. I feel like I was just scurrying from hole to hole, just trying to avoid the bad things in life. When God has created us to soar, God has created something greater. Yes, when in doubt, scurry into the hole. But if you want something that's, man, that, that's just relationship-based, love-based, learn to delight yourself in the Lord. And I tell you this, man. You will find yourself doing things that you could never do with the greatest amount of commitment. Because Ezekiel 37, 11 says the Lord will pour out his spirit and it will cause you to follow after the Lord. Which means the spirit in you wants to obey the Father. Your job is just to stop fighting it. Our job is just to yield to the spirit that already wants to come after the Father. Jesus said this. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. This is the whole premise of affection-based obedience. He doesn't say loving me is obeying my commands. He says first love, then obedience. He says obedience is the fruit. Love is the root though. And if you start loving me, guess what will happen after that? You'll start obeying me. The stuff that you were just stuck in, you'll, start, you'll find it breaking off of your life. Do you know that this is why it really hit me this week? The first commandment, right? The first commandment says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus Jesus is the one who spoke and said, this is the greatest reality. This is the highest priority, loving God. But what does he start off with? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I didn't really think there was a, anything important about the order, but now I do. Because a heart is not an organ of performance. It's an organ of preference. The heart is not about doing for God. It's first delighting in God. So Jesus says, you need to love the Lord your God. And the first thing you need to do is prefer him above everything else. The first thing you need to do is start delighting in him. And when you do that, all other obedience will follow. The battle for holiness is to be preoccupied with the right thing or the right person. I think we often start with doing, but it's really at first about the attention of your heart being captivated by Jesus. And so just turn with me to this last, last scripture. And I'll leave it to you here. Psalm 16. I won't share all of the text, but you can start in verse 5. And we'll just share this for a few minutes here. Psalm 16, start in verse 5. I'm going to read a few verses. I'll, I'll, I won't go through it now in its entirety, but I'm going to highlight a few verses here as we work through this, and we'll close out here. Psalm 16, verses 5 through 11 will be the close of it. I think this is a great portion of Scripture that... Um, parallels with what we just read about enjoying God. David, you know, David is, is, is a man that it just, he so stirs my heart. His pursuit of God is, is something incredible. It, it honestly, it confronts me, it convicts me, it challenges me. 
I mean, constantly he's talking about his love for God. Psalm 27, he's surrounded by nations, and he's saying, here's the one thing I want is to behold his beauty. And, and what I think is amazing, we shared this two weeks ago, is David is said to be a man after God's own heart, which means he was a man of obedience, but he also wanted to know God's heart. He wanted to know what moved God, what pleased God. And what I find interesting is that the one who knows God's heart the best is the one who draws after him the hardest. Which means there's something about knowing God that will actually fuel obedience and not cause you to actually want to run from him. So I'm saying, Lord, I want to know your heart like David did. I, I want to see what he saw. What does he know about you that even when he sins, he doesn't hide in shame, but he says, Father, forgive me. Here I am. There's something that he gets about the Lord. And I just feel the Lord saying what David knows is available for us. Like it's available. Listen, when we gather like this, all this is a teaching is just to provoke something. At the end of the day, it's on us to take this and start stewarding it. Even if the Lord has touched you and you're to fall out on the floor and come under the power of God, if you don't steward what the Lord did, that stuff will fade away. So when we're talking about getting before God and really enjoying him, if you say, man, I feel like God's stirring me, get before God this week and say, Lord, I want to delight in you like David. I want my life to be affection-based obedience. I want to move out of duty-based or whatever it may be. So listen to what he says. I'll start in verse 5. David says this. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Okay? Let's stop here for a moment. David is using a certain imagery that we may or may not, maybe you, you understand or not. But this is what he's talking about. It was very common that when people would conquer land or receive land, it would be, it would be broken up in, in, in allotments. There would be lots for the land. And what David is saying, he's using this imagery, and he's saying, my allotment, what I've received, he says, my lines have fallen on pleasant places. He says, my inheritance is beautiful. But what is he talking about? Is he talking about land? No, no, no. He, he's, he's talking about the Lord himself. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. He's using this imagery to say, my inheritance like what I've received, it's, it's the Lord and it is good. The condition of your life was directly dependent on the land that you would receive, right? If you receive poor land, especially as an, in an agricultural society, that led, that led to a hard life. But David is saying, when I see the, the portion that I've chosen, it is good. It is pleasant. It is beautiful. Who is it? It is the Lord himself. Do you know what it says when the Israelites came into the promised land and the land was divvied up? Do you know that it says all the tribes receive land except one? The priests. It says about the priests, the Lord says, no, 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 it's different for you guys. You're priests. He says, I'll be your reward. I'll be your allotment. I'll be your land. I'll be your possession. What are we in the new covenant? Priests. Do you understand that the Lord has always been after a people that would say, Lord, the world may find their identity, their inheritance, their comfort, and all these things, but as for me, I find it in you. My lines are pleasant places. My inheritance is beautiful. It's you, Lord. I'm rooted and secured in you, and I'm, I'm glad that I am. And so to keep reading, I'm going to skip verse 7. Let's go to verse 8. David says this. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. Okay, let's just stop there again. It's, it's so similar to what the, what the bride said. She says, with great delight, I sit with him. What's, what's David saying? He says, I have chosen to set the Lord before me. This is a conscious choice that David makes. 
What does David know about Jesus where he says, this is something that I enjoy doing. I, I, I purpose it in my heart to keep the Lord always before me. He knows that when he does this, man, he finds everything his heart's been looking for. In fact, in verse 9, he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Gladness, joy is the fruit of always setting the Lord before you. Listen, this is easier said than done. I mean, we can say these things, but if we start doing this, guys, this can change our walk with the Lord. I believe it's what it's always been called to be. And so finally, uh, let me just skip into verse 11. I'll read the last verse. He says this. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that's a powerful, powerful statement. Fullness. Fullness is, is to me not lacking or omitting anything. It's containing as much as possible. So when it comes to the joy of the Lord, David has a revelation that in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Fullness, actually in the Old Testament, is used often to, to describe one's appetite and it being fully satisfied. So what David is really saying is, Lord... I have an appetite for pleasure because God created us for this so that we would connect with him in this way. I have an appetite, Lord, for something in my heart. And guess what? When I come into your presence, I find it fully satisfied. I find everything that my heart is longing for met in the person of Jesus. I think many, uh, let me put it for myself. I've often quoted this, but the way that I have taught or understood or even lived out obedience, dedication, and holiness has shown how little I really grasp how delightful and enjoyable God is. Because again, oftentimes it's been about me trying to white knuckle this thing rather than me sitting with him and having him so tenderize my heart with his beauty that I say all the other stuff, I don't want it anymore. I don't want to go after that. Psalm 63, David, he gives this beautiful progression. He says, Lord, my soul thirsts after you. And then he says in verse 5, I will be satisfied as with the richest of food. So what he says is, Lord, I have a need, and I come in humility because nothing in this world can do it. I live in a dry and parts land. The Lord always responds to humility. God connects with him, and now David says, "My the result of me humbling myself and saying, I need you, Lord, he says, now I'm satisfied. And then in verse 8, you know what it says? He says, Lord, my soul clings to you. He hungers, he's satisfied, now he clings. This is the path of holiness. What's moving David? Satisfaction. He's so overwhelmed by what he's experienced that he says, Lord, sustain me, refresh me, keep me. I cling to you, Lord, not because someone's whipping me on the back, but because there's nothing better than you. This is the bridal revelation of the bridegroom. If I were to, let me illustrate this way. If you're in darkness, right, if you're in a dark room and you want there to be light, can you open the window and start dumping out buckets of darkness? (laughs) No, be foolish. You've got to put the light on. But this is, again, how we approach so many things in our life, and we wonder why we get stuck in cycles. There is a place for our, um, look, there's a place for commitment and dedication. What I'm saying, the commitment and dedication is not focusing on the darkness. It's focusing on the light because light expels darkness. Darkness is not expelled by darkness. There was a period in my life where I'd wake up and say, I don't want to do this anymore, Lord. I don't want to use. I don't want to do that. And guess what? I did it by 9 a.m. in the morning. The way that my heart's been set free is not by focusing on the darkness. I focus on the revelation of the light. And the light has driven it out of my heart. And so finally he says at the end, he says, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Forevermore means enduring, everlasting. They don't fade. They don't weaken. And where are these pleasures? At his right hand. Where is Jesus? At the right hand of the Father seated. So where are these pleasures forevermore found? In the person of Jesus. Guys, you have a person that you can lock into at any season, at any moment. God says, in the presence of your enemies, I will prepare a table for you. What enemies? Could be anything. It could be the enemies of discouragement, the enemies of depression, the enemies of just the unknown going on in your life. But God says, connect with me. You'll find something that will satisfy your heart even in that season. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. You won't give in to other things because you feel like it's just all going to fall apart. No, I will sustain you. In the presence of your enemies, there is a table set before you. Last thing I'll share here is, I was thinking about this too, the person of Jesus being the pleasures forevermore. We speak a lot about how desirable eternal life is, right? Come on, how many of us desire eternal life? Every hand? Good. Two hands, that's what I like to see. <laughs> well, I've always thought eternal life, what makes eternal life pleasure or, or enjoyable or attractive is the fact that it goes on forever. <laughs> it's eternal. That's what makes eternal life so good. That's not what makes eternal life so good. It's that you get to know and enjoy an infinitely satisfying person in perfect communion forever. You get to encounter the pleasures forevermore manifesting. If Jesus wasn't there, man, it wouldn't be enjoyable. But the fact is that we get to live with him. It's beautiful. Rick, are you able to put music on or, or not? If you could. Shout out to right. It's on. There it is. I just can't hear it. So I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close here. But in John 15, 11, I really, I just, I, I wanted to release something and just pray. If, if you struggle with really affection-based obedience, if you struggle with cycles of the same sin, man, there's stuff I, it's, I'm, this is me, like really. And I just see that I need to grow in delighting in the Lord. I, I, I I'm honest. I'm not, I'm not speaking from a person that has arrived by any means. I see stuff in my life that it's just, I mean, it's just nasty. And I'm just seeing the Lord saying, you got to just love me, enjoy me. This stuff will begin to break off. And in John 15, Jesus said, after giving the parable of the vine, he says, I've said these things to you. He says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That means the one whose pleasure is forevermore, he doesn't just walk around and say, guys, I have the oil of gladness. Stinks for you. <laughs> he says, I have the oil of gladness and I want to impart it to you. I want to give you my joy. I want to give you something that you can't find in this world. But listen to me, it's going to say, but I feel like the Lord's saying, but you've got to abide in me. You've got to really commune with me. You've got to really prioritize coming away with me. And I promise you, if you do, if you do, I'm going to release something into your life that will sustain you through every single season. Here's the key. The first key, I should say. Some here, I realize, have been walking with the Lord, and there's a matter of you just going deeper. But if you don't know Jesus, right? Or someone even listening online doesn't know Jesus. You say, well, how do I start here? You can't, you can't enjoy the Lord until you first understand Jesus and, and how you need to come in relationship with him. And it's amazing because there's a beautiful way to express it from the text we just read. In that verse 3, I want you to hear this and we'll close. The, the bride said, I sat down in his shade with great delight. She said, I sat down in his shade with great delight. And I'm reading this, and I feel like the Lord's saying that there's something here. There's something here, and I'm stopping. A shade implies what? A tree. There's a tree. So she's coming under a tree. Do you know what one of the names of the cross is? 
It's a tree. When she says this, see, in the natural, she's sitting under a tree. But for us, the spiritual application is, for us as believers, is she saying, or we could say the church is saying, I'm connecting with him based on his finished work. I'm, I'm sitting with him and I find joy because I'm engaging with him and relating to him based on what he has done for me. I'm not sitting here because of what I've done. That leads to pride. And then you never know if you've done enough. So you never can truly enjoy being with him. It's always to try to get something. Or we fall into the fear and discouragement when we find out that he's provided everything that we need. And I want to encourage you that the starting point of beginning to enjoy the Lord is the first to, to realize that there's been shade provided for you from the scorching heat of sin. Jesus has done it. And when we receive that, man, we begin to realize that now I'm his based on his perfect finished work that's eternal and I can start relating wholeheartedly to him. I can start being vulnerable with him. I can start sharing my weakness with him because even when I fail, I wasn't saved because of my goodness, but because of his. And this is how you start changing. So I just want to pray over you guys. And I just pray that the Lord would, would honestly just break something and maybe in your heart, in the midst of the crazy noises. <laughs> I just, uh, you don't need to stand or anything, but I'm curious, anyone, anyone feel like they struggle with finding God enjoyable, delighting in the Lord? Yeah, does anyone feel like temptation is always offering something more satisfying? I definitely struggle with that. Well, let's just let the Holy Spirit just minister to you for a moment. I want you guys just to bow your heads. Listen, I know cars are driving. It's all right. The Lord works through all of it. Like I said, the Lord, I believe, he can touch us. I mean, those touches are powerful, life-changing. But if you feel a grace in your heart from the Lord to really come out of maybe some type of bondage, I just, I, I really encourage you, don't, don't just be excited about the Lord speaking. Respond to that. Respond when you get home. Respond this week. Just be real with them. The Lord will do more things in a moment that we could do in a lifetime uh, if we just wouldn't coddle what's going on. If we'd really say, Lord, I, I, I come in your shade, therefore it's by your grace that I'm here. So this is what's going on in my heart. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are, you are real. As Paul said, he was bound and doing things he didn't want to do, but he found a power that was greater. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you desire to empower your people to run after the Father. You empower your people to yield their life to Christ. And Lord, I pray for those, those especially here this morning, those that are watching that maybe have raised their hands, those that really struggle with enjoying you, delighting in you. I, I pray, God, that the, the reality of you being pleasures forevermore would, oh, God, I pray it would become something that manifests in their life. This week, I pray joy would erupt in their hearts when they sit with you. I pray you'd give them the strength to prioritize this in their life, to prioritize coming away with you. I pray for testimonies, Lord. Testimonies of bondage of religion being broken. Testimonies of 
always feeling like just trying to grit your teeth and avoid bad things, just being broken, I pray, Lord, we'd find a passionate bride arising in this house. I pray the world would see it, Lord. The world would see something different. They'd see a bride in love. They'd want to know what it's all about. Just take a moment. Just one more moment. Even in your own words, just connect with the Lord. Connect with that person who's forever available, whose pleasure's forevermore. And even in your own words, just ask him. Ask him to come for grace. Ask him to tenderize your heart. Ask him that the scriptures we read through would be more than just something we speak with our words. He'll do it. He desires to do it. When he tells us to come to him, it's not to embarrass us. It's not to say, who's going to really step out and then say, I was just kidding. When he says, come and you'll find rest, come and you'll find joy, he has every intention of fulfilling that. All we have to do is yield. So, Lord, I pray this week, in a new way, in a different way, maybe in a way that extends us beyond what we're comfortable with, I pray that we would yield to you, Lord. We'd yield to you. And you just fill hearts, John 15, 11, with your joy, that their joy may be complete. Holy Spirit, seal that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I enjoyed being with you guys this morning. <laughs> if, uh, if, anyone, if anyone needs prayer, uh, I don't know if we set up a prayer team. If not, I'll have a few people up here. We'd love to pray with you if there's something specific, especially to what we spoke about. Um,